Welcome to the BJA Education Podcast. Hello and welcome to the May edition of the BJA Education Podcast. As you can hear, there's been a change in presenters since the podcasts were last updated. And we'd like to say a big thank you to Dr. Eleanor Carter for her excellent work in establishing the podcast and bringing us to this point. So we'd like to introduce ourselves as your new podcast editors for the next few years. So I'm Cliff Shelton, an anaesthetic registrar from the Northwestern Deanery. I'm currently taking some time out of programme for research as an NIHR doctoral research fellow at Lancaster University, where I'm undertaking a qualitative study into anaesthesia for hip fracture surgery. Uh, and I'm Benj Marriage. I'm a final year registrar in the East of England Deanery. Quite an interest in pre-hospital care, trauma and major general. As you will have noticed, the print edition of BJA Education is now being produced monthly and we aim to produce one podcast per month in order to keep pace with the print journal. You'll see the podcast icon printed next to the title and one article per edition. So this month we've started with a topic that has universal relevance but which many of us find somewhat daunting. That's statistics. Cliff went to talk to Dr Matthew Atkinson about the stats involved in sample size calculation. So I'm here at East Lancashire NHS Trust with Matthew Atkinson, who's a consultant in anaesthesia and critical care, uh, to talk about his paper on statistical analysis, sample size and power estimations, which he co-authored together with Malachi Collum. So thank you very much, Matthew, for agreeing to do this podcast, uh, based on a paper in which you state that there's a strong ethical justification for researchers to ensure that the data they collect are sufficient and of adequate quality. And I think that sets the tone for why we believe that it's uh, you know, a good topic for a podcast so that people will increase their understanding of the statistical principles that you go on to describe. So let's sort of start off with uh, a brief discussion about the topic of the paper, sample size calculation. What is sample size calculation and why is it useful? A sample size calculation is a calculation you should do before undertaking a study to estimate how many subjects to include in a study uh, in order to uh, reliably uh, observe the presence or absence of a difference uh, between two groups usually um, based on information that you've got beforehand um, to minimise the risks of making errors uh, in the conclusions that you draw based on the data you collect. Okay, so why is it so important to do a sample size calculation prior to commencing data collection? Doing a sample size calculation enables you to work out the optimum number of subjects in your study to reduce the likelihood of making a mistake or making an error in terms of the conclusion that you draw about whether or not there's a difference between two particular groups or an association between two two particular things. You don't want too many subjects so that you obviously notice whether or not there's a difference very clearly, but you don't want too few subjects so that you fail to notice a difference that's a bit more difficult to pick up. It's very important to use the money that we spend on research as efficiently as possible because research is quite expensive both in terms of money and the the time of people doing the research and and both in terms of, of, of the patients who, who who form subjects in our research um, in taking part in their research they could be receiving some a treatment that definitely works they may only have a, have a one in two chance of receiving that mm. treatment so their their input to the study shouldn't be wasted should be used as optimally as possible to most efficiently give the best chance of producing a useful answer. And you said that you base some of this information on things that you already know about the population that's being studied. I mean, how do you get that information? 
that information you hopefully have on the basis of pre-existing research. Um, you can do pilot studies to, to find out population means and standard deviations, without which you can't usefully do a sample size uh, calculation. But because there's already quite a large existing volume of research, it's often quite you're usually able to find some data to uh, supply you with the information that you need. And if you aren't, then a sample study is probably the best way to go ahead to find that information out. I see. So as you say in your paper, in order to calculate sample size, you need to define the type 1 error rate, the power, and the minimum standardised difference. Can we go through what those things are? Should we start off with type 1 error? What's What does that mean? Yeah. The, the type one error, a type one error is uh, what the is when a study incorrectly identifies a difference between two groups, or between two sample groups where there's no such difference in the population. So mm-hmm. the so the study falsely falsely makes an association between two, between two things, or, or, or notices a difference when when there is no difference. Uh, a false positive error is is a type one error. Okay, uh, and. We tend to set the likelihood of that. We, we in most research tends to want the likelihood of that to be less than one in twenty or zero point zero five. Okay. Some research is a bit more uh, specific and says it wants the likelihood of that to be even less, less than zero point zero one or one in one hundred. Okay. And then what about power? What's what is what is power? So the power of a study is the likelihood of it correctly identifying a difference between two groups when when that difference does exist in the population. It's the chance of not making a type 2 error, which okay. is the, the other kind of error that you can make where um, you fail to notice an existing difference, so a false negative sort of uh, result. Uh, and conventionally in research, we, we tend to allow, uh, we want an 80% power or a, a, a 1 in 5 chance of making a type 2 error. Some people will be a bit more specific and want a, a 90% power or a 0.1 risk of making a type 2 error. Okay. And the minimum standardised difference, what's, what's that? The minimum standardised difference is a term, it's, well, it's a hybrid term. The minimum difference is the smallest clinically meaningful difference that you're interested in measuring. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at the difference between blood pressure treatments, maybe you want to look for a minimum difference of 10 millimetres of mercury or 5 millimetres of mercury. Okay. The standardised difference is the ratio of the minimum difference to the population standard deviation that you're looking at. So there's two concepts there. There's the minimum difference, which is measured in whatever units that you're measuring. Okay. And there's the standardised difference, which is a ratio of that to the standard deviation in the population, which is also in the similar units. So that's a dimensionless number. That's like a ratio. Okay. And that's quite useful to compare when, when you're looking at different quantities that you're measuring. So you can look at a, a standardised difference in blood pressure. You can compare that with a standardised difference in weight in kilograms or a standardised difference in... Um, in height, uh, because it's, the, it's just the ratio between the value and the standard deviation of value in the population. So this is something that ensures that the findings of the research have the power to be clinically relevant? Yes, yes, yeah. that's right. Um, and um, when, you, when you're putting the maths together, you can either use the minimum difference and the standard deviation together in the maths, or you can just use the standardised difference, which is the ratio oh. of those two things. Okay, thank you for clearing that up. Um, so... You mentioned that we accept um, a p-value of 0.05 or a, a 1 in 20 chance of a type 1 error, but we'll accept 20% chance of a type 2 error. Why is there a the difference in these numbers? It's difficult for me to give you a rigorous and clearly thought out answer to that question. Um, when I ask that question and try and answer it, I struggle. Mm. And look, looking through a lot of research, 
it seems to be down to convention. This is what we've always done and this is the way we've always done it. Um, um, the consequences of making a type 1 error, of incorrectly claiming a false or non-existent association, could be the wide-scale adoption of a useless treatment mm. or a useless clinical test. Um, this could lead to patient harm through failure to utilise more more effective treatments or tests. But the consequences of an incorrectly disregarding a true association, the consequences of making a type 2 error, could be the failure to adopt a new or more effective treatment because you've not noticed that it works, mm. um, leading to continuing utilisation of less effective treatments or tests. So they, they both have negative consequences if you yeah. make those mistakes. Um, conventionally, the idea of crying, of, of noticing a new thing wrongly uh, seems to be viewed by the scientific community as worse compared with failing to notice something that somebody may then go on to notice in another study. Mm. We often find people repeat studies to, to, to look for an association or a difference between groups that previous, previous people have failed to notice. But equally, you get studies that repeat um, previous positive findings, and some of those show that those findings are no longer positive. Now, that might not be down to whether or not the initial research was correct or, or, or incorrect, but it may be down to changes in practice as a whole. Quite a nice example with goal-directed fluid therapy. Mm. The River study that was seminal that noticed a positive response in goal-directed fluid therapy, make, seemed to make people better in sepsis. But it was a small, single-centre study, relatively speaking. We've had three recent, very large, multi-centre studies which have failed to notice that difference. Yeah, and I don't know whether that reflects whether Rivers's conclusion was just wrong, or whether practices have changed and people are a bit more willing to be generous with fluids. So goal-directed therapy makes less difference. You mentioned something in the article called the Bonferroni correction. Can you explain what that is? The Bonferroni correction is a way of ensuring that the total overall risk of a type 1 error or a false positive is what you originally say it is. Mm. And we tend to set it at 1 in 20, but 0.05. But the more you look for things, if you look for, say, 3 things or 10 things or 100 things, and you set each individual test to 1 in 20... If you add those together, you, you've, you've got a higher risk of, of, of making a type 1 error. If you do 10 tests, for example, you've got a 0.4 risk of making a, a type 1 error if they're all set to 0.05. Mm. So all the Bonferroni ca- uh, correction does is it divides the, uh, the the alpha risk, the risk of a type 1 error, by the number of outcomes that you're looking at. So if you're looking at 20 outcomes, the overall probability of making a type 1 error still has to be 0.05. That's the that's what the Bonferroni correction does. Yeah. And it's a good way of looking at studies and seeing, is this a little bit fishy that they're looking for all sorts of these outcomes and maybe two or three of them are positive? Mm. Well, perhaps they would have been positive just they've made a type 1 error. So once you've worked out your power and the standardised difference and your type 1 error rate... Um, how would one go about making a sample size calculation? So once once you've got those three uh, pieces of information, you can plug them into an equation, which we've sort of produced in the paper. Mm. There's lots of websites that make it easy for you to do that. Most commercial stats packages will do that for you as well. Uh, and the Altman nomogram is a is a very nice, straightforward way of doing it. All you need to do is put a ruler through the through the three values to get your uh, your sample size. It's probably worth doing more than one method it's probably worth using one method to check another method uh, to make sure that you're not going a long way out Mm. it's probably worth having more than one individual do this uh, to make sure that you've not made some inherent uh, mistake in your assumptions building it all together 
and it's almost, almost certainly worth seeking some professional advice from a statistician, which is usually available in uh, most hospital trusts and most universities. Okay, so you mentioned the, the Altman nomogram, which is, uh, there's a copy of that in your paper, isn't yes. there? And you mentioned some websites. Is there any websites in particular you can direct um, listeners to? I, I, there's lots and lots of websites that you can find on Google uh, or Wikipedia, but I've been to uh, www.sample-size.net, which is, uh, I think, a University of San Francisco website, which is very, very easy to use and quite straightforward in terms of plugging your numbers in. Mm. And you mentioned, I mean, having a, a you know a statistician um, go through your, your, your data would be a, a wise thing. I mean... Would you say there's um, this is something that should be just delegated to a statistician, or is there, you know, a, a good reason for clinicians um, such as you or I to be doing this calculation as well? I think to embark on the research without understanding statistics means that you're much more likely to make lots of mistakes in a lot of the things that you do on a day-to-day basis in research without realizing that it's going to damage your statistics, mm. and it's it's good to have ownership of your research. Um, you're, we're not professional statisticians, and I think we should seek help from professional statisticians. But being able to understand the statistics and being able to organise statistics to a degree for yourself, I think, is definitely very helpful for anybody doing research, really, and forms part of what they do, really. Okay. If you get, certainly, if you're going to interact with uh, publications and you're going to reply to comments, being able to understand the statistics is absolutely critical. So in your final paragraph, you, you talk about negative trials, and you sort of state that um, you know, some of them are useful and some of them are, are not so useful and there's some implications of power calculations here. Why would you want to do a, a retrospective power calculation on a negative trial? So retrospective power calculations are only really useful in negative studies. If you've got a positive study, you've shown an effect, this is the likelihood of a type 1 error. Mm. Um, so there cannot be a type 2 error being made because you've got a positive response. If you've got a negative response, then it can either be a true negative response, there is no association, in the, there is no difference between those two groups in the population, or there's no association, um, or there is an association, but you fail to notice it because your sample size is too small. Mm. And if the power calculation hasn't been done uh, beforehand and retrospectively, doing sample size retrospectively, you can calculate what the power of that study was, and therefore the likelihood of that conclusion being an error, a type 2 error, or the likelihood of that conclusion being correct. And that can then inform whether you want to go on to do a larger study or whether you want to say, no, I'm happy I'm happy to accept there's only a very small risk that there's a type 2 error here. It's likely that there is no effect. Dr Matthew Atkinson, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us in this podcast. Um, I hope that's been useful for our listeners. It's certainly been very interesting for me. And I think you've highlighted some of the things that clinicians can get from uh, a basic knowledge of statistics as well as those of us who do research so thank you very much indeed oh, thanks for having me it's been a pleasure so thanks Matthew and Cliff for that interview which accompanies the article statistics sample size and power calculation from this month's BJA education as Matthew mentioned the equations and the Altman nomogram are all reproduced in the manuscript so make sure you give it a read It was interesting to hear some of the critique of River's study in that discussion, and this is the topic of next month's podcast. So please join us in a few weeks when I'll be talking to Dr. John Oliver Dunn about his forthcoming article on the place of goal-directed hemodynamic therapy in the 21st century. Thank you for listening to the BJA Education Podcast.